You're listening to Story Power, a podcast dedicated to disruptive storytelling. I'm your host, Jen Kinney. Welcome. Hey, it's been a while. I decided to take a break in the middle of season two. We're going to call this part two of season two. On the last episode of Story Power Podcast, we had another installment in the Critical Race Theory series that I just decided to do. And I got to talk with Amber Sims, who is an attorney. And it was a really great conversation on a number of levels. One, because she's an attorney and critical race theory is a graduate level legal study. But two, it was just a really great conversation because we got to talk about and unpack some of our experience within evangelicalism. We talked a lot about patriarchy and the role that that plays in oppression. All in all, it was just a fascinating and fantastic conversation. So if you haven't listened to it, I recommend going back and giving it a listen. Um, Next week, we're going to have propaganda on the show talking about his new book, Terraform. And I have a guest co-host in that, Keena Reed from Divesting from Whiteness and the Anti-Blackness Reader. So I'm really excited about that particular show. Yeah, so today we're talking to Melissa Flora Bixler. Melissa is an author and a pastor at the Raleigh Mennonite Church. She is an abolitionist. She's written a couple of books, and we're focusing specifically on her book, How to Have an Enemy. How to Have an Enemy has challenged me in such good ways, so I'm really excited for this book, and I'm really excited for you to get it and to read it and learn from it. Welcome to the show, Melissa. It's great to be here. Thanks, Jen. Yeah, thanks for coming. So you have a new book out, and I really want to get into that. But before we talk about your new book, I would love to hear a little bit about you. Who are you? Oh, wow. It just, it feels like such like a loaded question at this moment. Um, yeah, so who am I? I pastor a Mennonite church. That's what I do with my time. I spend a lot of time in our community um, working around coalition building, um, working towards organizing people power through organized money and organized people for a people's agenda. My real passion is in um, police and prison abolition. And I parent three children. I have a spouse. Um, I am a person of faith in the Mennonite tradition. And I garden. I have a I have a flower garden that I spend a lot of time in, and that is a sort of the one place of the closest thing I have to a hobby right now. I would love to hear just a little bit about your your journey into becoming a pastor for the Mennonite Church. I grew up in in the Episcopal Church, which I think when people hear that they imagine something very different from my experience, which is uh, my, my church has since left to join the Anglican communion in North America, Akana, which is a very conservative, anti-gay, restricts women from certain ministry positions, um, denomination that broke off of the Episcopal church. And so I grew up in that kind of Episcopal church, which was um, you know, technically, because they were part of the the Episcopal Church, they, you know, there, we knew that women could be priests, but I never had a woman priest that I that I could remember. Um, and 
and so I think that that saying is very true. You can't be what you can't see. And so it, it just never occurred to me. Uh, but there was also just very sort of traditionally masculine hierarchical sort of understanding of what it meant to be charged with the life of the church, right? I, I just had this sense of, oh, it's the person who gets up and, and makes the decisions for the church. Or, you know, I, I never saw my, my priests in community roles or activist roles. And so that really shifted for me when I started going to a Mennonite church when I was at Duke in the early 2000s. And that was the first time that I was introduced to this idea of, of the pastor as one priest among priests um, and that there was not a, a hierarchy to, to the gifts or, or roles of ministry. There wasn't the sort of sense of um, being ontologically set apart for ministry in the way that, you know, the laity was not. Um, the, the, it, there were times where I remember the, the very first Mennonite church I was in didn't have a, a, a pastor in a permanent role. Um, and they, they had a church anyway, <laughs> which was, which is just not possible in the Episcopal church because who's going to preside over communion. Right. Uh, and so that that really changed things for me uh, was beginning to see the pastoral role as as one role among many. And and even now, one of the thing one of the main idea sort of charges I have within myself as a pastor is how do I make the structure of power in our church as flat as possible, um, and how do we pay attention mm. to where power is popping up? It's like I guess like a crude metaphor is like whack-a-mole. <laughs> like, like you see like, oh, this person or this committee or this <laughs> issue is like, like starting to like, you know, consolidate its power. It's like, no, right. we got to like push that down. We got to, we got to talk about why that's happening. Like it's really a role of sort of constant power analysis to be sure that um, those who have lacked wow. power in the world are able to find a place of refuge and sanctuary, right? Like that's that's what we call the place of our meeting is sanctuary. Uh, and so mm. for me, church is really about how do we how to create how do we create safety and harbor and sanctuary for people who out there in the rest of their lives. Are, are constantly sort of the, the people that Howard Thurman says have their back against the wall. That's a very different idea of what it means to be in ministry um, than, than what I grew up with. Um, and that that made sense to me. It made sense with, of the gospels. It made sense of me as a person and, mm -hmm. and the work that I felt called to do. Um, and so once I sort of had that vision for pastoral ministry, it was the, the path was clear. I love that. All right, so we can get into your book. The book is called How to Have an Enemy, Righteous Anger and the Work of Peace. So I just get this delivered to my Kindle, I think, yesterday. I mean, I dug into it like right when it came. And it is probably the most challenging book I've read in certain ways. Like, And that's interesting to me. So I kind of need to verbally process here. But like I'm reading about nonviolent atonement theory and, and black liberation theology and womanist, you know, theology on atonement. And I'm coming from, right, like this white evangelical fundamentalist background. And I feel almost more stretched 
in reading this in ways and it's so powerful. So I am, I am really appreciating it and I want to talk to you a bit about it. But before I go into that, what is the book about? Yeah. So I, I think that a lot of us, uh, especially people who live in racially and economically diverse communities who have put our lives in solidarity as white people with communities of color, definitely any person who was at the margins of the Trump agenda or under the boot of the Trump agenda is starting to, I think, unpack the trauma of these past four years. Um, I think there was a very strong sort of survival instinct about how to get through this administration. And and now I, I think we're starting to see these books written about, I guess, like a postmortem in some way. Um, and and so I, I often say, you know, I I don't I the primary audience for for anything I write is because I have a question that I have to work out within myself. Um, and it's sometimes it's it's writing that other people want to come along for the ride. So I don't think of uh, of, you know, trying to influence anybody else or I, you know, I have I have a pretty strong sense that we can't read our way out of oppression um, and so again, I think again, bringing back that sort of metaphor of what does it mean just to create create a space for people who who basically felt like they were gaslit by the church for the past four years? I just remember hearing over and over again from the majority white church, definitely from the men, a lot of people in the Mennonite church, um, that the, what was happening in the Trump administration was actually a call for for unity or to understand why the, you know, people decided these economic anxieties were sending people towards the far right agenda. And if we just saw the humanity of, uh, you know, it's all this sort of like, we just need to overcome our animosity and we can't, you know, paint all Trump supporters this way. And just over and over again, the sense of, I feeling like people who said that just had nothing on the line. You know, our congregation is, you know, helping to support two people who are living in sanctuary for multiple years. One of our church members is in ICE detention. We have kids of um who are children of immigrants and and black people in our congregation who live with a sort of daily onslaught of media trauma, like reiterating just hate speech uh, normalized in uh, in our political discourse. And and it, and it felt so overwhelming to, to sort of be like, wait, what's happening? Like, what Jesus are we talking about here? <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, like, the things you're talking about are unrecognizable to me from the Gospels. And so this was sort of my way of being like, okay, I feel like I'm not off base here and saying like, we really need to be able to identify people as, as enemies in this moment. If we're going to e have even begin to think about what love looks like, we have to like have a robust understanding of what it means to have an enemy. Um, and so I need to work this out for myself, but also knowing that there are other people who have also sort of sensed this um, unity at all costs, unity for unity's sake, and are looking towards to, to Jesus for for a way to to sort of break that apart. And so that's really where the book was born. 
One of the things like when you were talking about why you wrote the book and sort of who you wrote the book for, in a sense, it, it takes me back to my early days of trying to step into the role of taking on hard conversations and encouraging people to communicate, right? So when I got back from China, I had lived abroad in a very diverse community of people. And we would get together and we would have these conversations and arguments and debates and all of this stuff. And, and still at the end of the day, really like connect and be in community together. And when I came back to the US, I remember initially like lamenting the division that I saw. So to give you some time context, I came back to the States in 2011. I was new to Facebook, you know, like I hadn't really been on Facebook. I'd lived in China, so we really didn't have access to it. And I just remember thinking like, if I could just get people around the table to talk, that would solve this, right? And so it's interesting because where your book is really challenging me and putting some pieces together for me is like, I started this thing called food for thought dinner parties. And so we would get together and have a meal and talk about different issues. And I held it in a predominantly white space for the first five years or so. And it worked out just fine. And we could sit around the table and we could theorize and philosophize and argue and debate and do all of these things. And then something shifted for me. And I realized that after I really started getting invested in and involved in anti-racism work, learning about the history of our nation, being in relationship with people, it no longer became possible for me, but I didn't necessarily have the language for it. I just knew it had changed. And so something that you really articulated you say, until we are willing to name, assess, and address power, how we come to the church in bodies that bear within them legacies of power brokering, centering, and divestment, our Christian unity is little more than a strategy to maintain the status quo and avoid conflict. Could you talk about that a bit? Yeah, I, you know, that's always... I mean, I share with you that that has been the primary strategy that I have heard for overcoming division is you get people around a table. You know, maybe the best way to say that is that at the end of the day, this is all a misunderstanding, right? Like if I understood your position and you understood yes. mine, we would see that we actually all want the same things. And even if that is the case, it, it seems like, what is often left out of that equation is that we have actually formed political identities that that have recently mapped on to to partisan identities but these identities are are something that we cultivate in in so many places in our lives that are beyond rationality right like that are not that are not just about um you know it's the the even what we're seeing right now with white identity politics has nothing to do with cybersecurity or your, you know, I really like this position on the um, IMF's exchange rates that the Republic, like, no, that's not what people think about, like when they're thinking about their, their political identities. Um, because this is much more to do with culture and religion and race and location, right? Like, 
And, and all of that um, has something to do with power. Um, and that's, I think, the church more than any other space that I have participated in is, is almost phobic of this conversation about power, right? I think this, instead we get this language of, we're all created in God's image. We all yes. come to the table as individuals and individuals that have attached to us, you know, the, like this long line, this legacy uh, and historical trajectory. Um, and so that gets back to, again, that I think that this is the church's sort of ideas about unity over division is that is sort of the religious sort of we can read our way out of this right it's that it's that same sort of um same sort of ideology that if we just have enough information right if we if we if we just had enough relationship um and i have seen and i think we all have seen that if we really extend that out we see that that relationship identity story all of that is an incredibly powerful tool for uh, shifting, for shifting people, and that can be good and that can be bad, um, right? Like, one of the I mean, who among us who is has not heard in abolition work, my neighbor is a police officer and he is this kind, gentle person. All he wants to do is to support the community, and and if you yes. just to him and heard his heart for this work. And, and so it, and so it really becomes it in abolition work. What we see is this reduction that happens often over it's like, who's, who has the better story, right? Mm. Is it the, the black man who is trying to go to his girlfriend's house and cuts through the yard and gets tased by a police officer? Or is it your really nice white cop neighbor who shows up at the elementary school to teach the safety demonstration? And whose story holds sway in our cultural moment is a matter of power, right? Like those who, whose story wins the policy debate is a matter of power. That is true like out there, outside of mm. church spaces, and it's true inside of church spaces too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And just thinking about like the, the whole reason I do this podcast and what I am passionate about is storytelling, specifically disruptive storytelling and disrupting narratives. Because I understand that, you know, in my own journey of deconstruction, divesting from whiteness, all of the stuff, I mean, like I, I shared recently that I come from a background where for 20 some years, I listened to Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity. I was a libertarian. You know, I became a, I became an evangelical Christian, super fundamentalist, you know, like all of these things. And so for the last eight years, as I've been peeling away layers, one of the things that I think has been really powerful for me and played such a powerful role in helping me deconstruct and divest is like the the disrupting of these commonly held narratives. So it's just, it's been interesting for me to think back on my own journey and the way that I viewed engaging conversation as being like the thing that was going to break through to people. If we could just sit around a table and have a conversation. And so reading your book is really disrupting certain things that I, I didn't even realize I'm still holding on to. And you said something earlier, you said, in order to really like love, we have to understand 
enemies. And it reminded me of this balance in grief and joy. In order to really experience joy, you have to really experience and and press into grief. And so, so much of what you've been saying is it really speaks to me about how colorblind narratives have just infected the way we view politics, the way we view people, the way we experience theology and seeing how it plays out in the church. I think that anybody listening to this, like you don't have to be a person of a particular faith for there to be a truth that is really important here and will really resonate with people. Uh, you know, like I was really uncomfortable with this idea of like enemy, you know, but I, I want to be a peacemaker. And while I'm an eight and my peacemaking a lot of times is lighting things on fire, <laughs> like I'm not about comfort. There was still this part of me that was kind of like, but, but isn't the point not to have enemies? Yeah. And Jen, I think it is right. I, but I think what we perhaps what, or, or I should say what I think I've often overlooked is how, how do we think about ending enemies um, isn't by like, again, like lining up, like getting, getting the information right. It's actually about moving our bodies into solidarity by those who have been the losing end of power historically, who mm. have been pushed to the side of these dominant narratives that you're talking about. It's about right. moving those of us who have um, been the winners of uh, the, the, the historic power of the United States, moving our lives into like very um, tangible acts of solidarity and activism alongside those who are, who are, are, are have become history's victims. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and, and that's what I think is what, what the gospels talk about over and over again, right? Like Jesus continues his interest is this is good news for the poor, right? It is good news for those who are imprisoned. It is good news for those who are, who are pushed aside from their communities because of their disabilities. Um, it's, we, it's not sort of like, I'm going to go like, um, talk to the Roman officials, and, like try to get them in the, in conversation with the, with right. the, with the, you know, the peasants and like, see if we could like work something out together. Like it really is just about moving one group into solidarity with the other group. Um, and what I think that offers us is this, um, that, that what we're actually looking for when we say we want an end to enmity, which I think is absolutely true. Like the shape of our lives as, as Christians is reconciliation. Like that's the ground that this works on. And it's, and what we're trying to do is, is like figure out and having enemies as a part of that. Right. Yeah. Um, But what we're actually, I think what we really want, the world that we want is to break apart the, like the, the, the constant system of oppressor and oppressed. We're actually looking instead of just to rework the system, to try to like shift some things around in this historical moment, we actually want a different world, right? Right, (laughs) We we want a world that that doesn't operate um, structurally on punishment and retribution and um, that, that, that sees the interconnection between the personal and political, right? That you can't get the relationship right unless you have transformational justice as a part of it. Like 
we can't, we can't change our world unless we actually stop working out within the sort of the systems of statist justice anymore. We need something else. Um, and I think there's like reflections of this in all sorts of places. For me, again, abolition work has been really the core of seeing that unfold. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we see this in in queer chosen families, right? Like that shifts right. the narrative away from who is my kin. Like w- there's there's glimpses of this all around us, and and I hope that this book is one is a way for me to sort of make a collection of of those places that have been a glimpse of that for me of this new order, this new social ethic that we have the opportunity to participate in. What is your hope with this book? Well, I think just to, just to add that, you know, I, <laughs> at the end of the day, I'm, I'm pretty sectarian. Um, I don't, I'm not trying to, like, I, I want people like me to not feel alone in this, yes. right? To be, to be encouraged for this work. You know, I, I've already done some talks on this and, you know, I hear oh, well, you know, I'm a pastor who serves a church where everybody loves Jesus. And, you know, their, you know, their, their racial attitudes aren't great, but, you know, we, we get along with each other and we care for one another. I'm like, all right. Like, I don't, like, I don't know what to, I didn't write this book to try to talk you out of that. Like, I, I can't begin to imagine how I would do that. But I think that there are enough of us who are looking for some way to to be encouraged um, to try to figure out how to get deeper into the work of a new kind of world together. Um, yeah. And I hope this is a is a resource for us, um, for for those of us who are sort of in that place of self-discovery and movement and um, who want want to grow and, and go deeper in this kind of work. Mm, I really appreciate that. Um, who has had the biggest impact on you in your work, in abolition, in justice, in any of this? Yeah, uh, Southerners on New Ground is a Black, queer-centered uh, abolition organization here in the South. And um, it has been just a such a joy and honor to watch and participate in the ways that I can um, in their work. Um, I I think that they have offered me sort of just a it's it's like all of, you know you can read about <laughs> abolition all day long and then to right. actually see communities really um, begin to to band together. Um, I, so song has certainly been very influential for me in um, sort of the active activation of, of sort of the abolitionist ideas that I've read about for decades now from Angela Davis and others like that. Do you have hope for abolition? Like, what do you, how do you see, cause you've been in abolition for a very long time. I am very new to it. And the thing that I'm finding is there are a lot of people who are genuinely, truly interested in learning more, committed to the idea of abolition, but perhaps lack like a connection to that next step. 
So I'm curious, like what you might recommend to people in that. And also, um, I'm just curious, like, do you have hope for abolition? Do you feel like things have changed or are changing currently? I'm hopeful because of the scope of abolition. Um, one of the really helpful pieces of wisdom from the abolitionists in my world is that this is not a work that is defined by policies, by um, by sort of a, like a big ending, like that the right. this national legislation will be passed. Um, mm -hmm. That would be amazing. We also know that the state always will find a way to recapture its power, right? Like this is not, right. there's not like a, and so, so to think about abolition as a kind of life that we cultivate. Um, mm. So you may have heard the phrase like abolition begins at home, right? Mm -hmm. That we, how do we, how do we think about punishment of our kids? Like that, like that's abolition. Like have we, are we training up our kids to think about um, when they do something wrong, they get separated and, um, and, and that we don't actually talk about the thing behind the, the issue involved, right? It's like, we, when we talk about abolition, we're talking about housing. When we're talking about abolition, we're talking about cops and schools and shifting towards ways of helping children um, imagine restorative justice and wraparound school programs that actually address the hunger and the parent needs that are that are behind um, incidents of violence that happen in schools. If you begin to think about abolition as a kind of life that you cultivate, I'm incredibly hopeful because all of a sudden people are starting to say, oh, wow, I want to be a part of that. And it's, it's yeah. really easy to be because you can say, Oh, it doesn't take that much to shift from, I want all people to have housing. Oh, and that also means I don't want people to be criminalized simply because they don't have a place to live. Mm. And so I need to think about that as the work that I do around ending housing injustice in my community. Um, and so there's all these ways that the work that we're already doing um, allows us to cultivate a life of abolition. I love that. And I love like, just for me, like reading, um, we do this till we free us. Mm -hmm. I didn't have the language. I didn't have the imagination for abolition until I started hearing from people and reading, you know, and like getting insight into what does this really look like in practice? Um, and I appreciate the idea that, you know, like abolition begins in the home. And I feel really called out at the moment. <laughs> Because, you know, I have two 11 year olds and I'm just like, ah, you know, like I want to punish you and take away all your things, you know, but it's like there are these things so ingrained in us. And so what an exercise it is to then bring that into the home and start there. Something I've been thinking about recently in relation to the book, as I'm talking more to churches in particular, uh, is this sort of this question that I think it should be more at the forefront of our minds um, as worshiping communities. And that question is, what is the church for? 
Right. I think we do all, yes. we see coaches do a lot of this sort of visioning work and, you know, what, it, you know, um, come up with like our next five-year plan. And, um, and I think the question that needs to be asked before all of that is what is, what is the church for? Um, and when, when faith communities sidestep that question, it just, we, we, be, we allow sort of assumptions to fill that space. And I think those assumptions can need, need to be stated out loud in, in some capacity, even if it is for ourselves, like to look yeah. around your and say, what is this actually for? That I think has also been something interesting that has emerged from this moment um, where we saw, we saw especially majority white churches answer this question in the Trump administration without knowing they were doing so. Right. So I, the number of books yes. that came out in the past couple years, and I will admit that my, I am writing somewhat in response to these books of the church is neither Republican or Democrat. Like we, like we really want to cultivate a, like a place outside of left and right. We want to um, really address political division in our congregations. We're big enough for all political traditions. Um, and what that basically means is that you don't understand yourselves as political outside of the voting booth. Like you don't, like, it is so true. That is so true. And do you think that is among people who are not marginalized by the state and by systems? Because like, is that a white people thing? It definitely is a white people. Because <laughs> that's kind of what I'm thinking, you know, like I remember when I first started delving into anti-racism work more seriously, I had this idea that like, this isn't about politics. And I would say that this isn't about politics. What I meant to say is this isn't about a particular party. And yet what I have learned over the years is it absolutely is like life is political. How do you separate those? Yeah, and I, and I, and I do, I mean, to your credit, I think that we have seen a shift in the past decade where we have seen a much stronger mapping on of racial identities onto parties. Like I was, I was reading okay. in, um, in a book, the Clinton platform for immigration for Bill Clinton. And you would think it was like the Trump plan. Like, it's like, we need yeah. to borders. Like, like, I think we have definitely seen a much stronger sort of surge, which, which uh, I mean, I think we all know this, right? Obviously, Donald Trump was like a philandering, like, like, like nothing like, like the, the Republican family values. I was kind of joking that I had watched that movie, The American President, where he's like this straight man who goes on a date with a woman and he's a, he's a widower. And it's like, it's like, it's just so it's like, oh, wow, this was a problem in 1990. Like, it's just so absurd. Ooh, right. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. So I do think that we've seen more of the snapping on what I do. I do think though, that, that there are churches that 
are, I mean, and we know this because like people like Dante Stewart have been writing about their experience of, you know, trying to help shift white evangelicalism um, and the burnout that's happened from that. Um, but I do think that there, are, we have heard the stories of people of color, people like Dante, who have said that really what they were taught about church is that church is a place for you to self-sacrifice if you were a person at the margins of power to sh like your job is to save white people from themselves oh, uh, yeah your job is not to flourish or rest or be nurtured in church no. your job is to work for the church's transformation that is a gospel of death <laughs> and yeah and that it, because every time we hear that um, about unity and churches where you have people who are suffering under the policies and beliefs of some people in the church, that unity is born differently by those two groups of people, right? It's Absolutely. unity is a burden to people who are at the margins of power. It's a burden um, that some people have to bear for the benefit of those who have made up the center of power, ableist power, ageist power, um, power of heteronormativity, power of race, um, power of gender. If you are the bearer of the power, then, then unity is for your benefit and it is born as a cost to others. Oh, yeah. So and so true. I don't wanna live that life anymore. Like, I don't wanna, like, I'm not gonna, right? I'm, like, I'm not gonna be, participate in that project like I like sort of like we said at the beginning my I see my role is to create sanctuary um and our survival doesn't as a as a denomination as a tradition even as a church um is not as significant as that call um nothing is more significant than to than for our congregation to be good news what does it look like for you saying I don't want to be a part of this anymore what are you doing not to be a part of this anymore? Well, I think one of the one of the commitments um, that our congregation has is is to not avoiding conflict. Um, is to carve out spaces for that both speak to our insistence about that. What is the church for? Um, and also allow for places for us to develop the kind of relationships that can let us grow in that. Um, so, you know, I more than, well, we really need to get people of color in our church, right? Like that's like, that's often the sort of like, oh, we can overcome the right. racism right, by inviting more people of color in our church. And my, <sighs> and my, my, uh, my first intention is how do we have a, a majority white anti-racist church? Like Amen. how do we, how do we as a majority white church commit ourselves to the kind of activism and organization that honors the people of color in our community and puts us in, puts what we have into alignment with um, the flourishing of, of people of color in our community. Mm -hmm. Those are the sort of things that motivate me now after decades of hearing, well, what you really need 
to overcome racism is a multicultural church. And that's become less apparent to me as a sort of silver bullet for, for fixing racialized attitudes in the church. Like we actually have to attend to our bodies, <laughs> to, our, to our lives, to the, to the politics that we enact every day. Mm. Um, and also to create a lot of space for the grace of growth and change. Um, again, like that if somebody gets something wrong, we don't punish them or we use this language a lot in song. We call them back in for, to the work. Like, yeah, like let's like, what, what can we do to, to call you back in to, to re-engage? Um, and if you don't want to, that's fine. Both that, like that commitment and growth and grace can, can coexist. You are doing hard work leaving such space for all the nuance of this. I, and I appreciate that, like the, the root system is what you're looking at and that's essential. Now, before we close out, one question I like to ask everybody on the podcast is, what gives you hope? What gives me hope? Um, which actually so connects to that last comment about like that this is really hard work. Um, and, and also just really good work. Um, you know, I, I think that there can be within activist community or organizing communities, some sense of scarcity of the, yes. of, of the goodness of this. Um, but I, you know, at the end of the day, I actually think a, like being an oppressor is also bad for oppressors. Right, like we, I think that um, yeah. that being a misogynist is bad for men, right? right. I, like um, that there is sort of both a moral and spiritual wound of having your flourishing depend on the brokenness of another human being, and is especially of a of a whole a, a whole group of people in who have been sort of shifted towards um playing the role of of making sure that you get to you get to you get to be on top um so we so one of when i think about hope i think this is actually hopeful for all of us like getting to be um a part of the work um it may be hard but it's also good. Like it is, it is um, being set free um, from 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 the destruction of your neighbor, and to be able to see that there is there's enough um, that we don't have to have racial hierarchies that were created to make us believe that if we don't keep these racial hierarchies up, something's going to fall apart for us. And so I always say I I do think there's something important for balancing out for us that both we lay down we lay down privilege we lay down access we lay down um the sort all of the things that have sort of come with being the, um the 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 racial assumption that you know being white is normative everything else is sort of in in addition to being white all of that is work all of that is something but the hope of this is that this new thing that we're creating is actually better. <laughs> like it's better for all of us. Yes, yes. Safe instead of just giving us the facade of safety. Yes. It actually makes us flourish because we cannot be free until everybody is free. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, you know, I think if we're 
for, for me, for our congregation, this is actually a journey towards wholeness. Um, and that, that is where I think the hope is for me. That's always sort of in front of me is, um, as difficult as the task is, this is understanding our freedoms are bound together, um, is, is, is where the hope is for us. That's so good. Cause seriously, like for me, when I really started digging into this, I would experience the, like just devastation and heartbreak. And then just these moments of such incredible joy. And at first I was like, am I supposed to feel joy in this? I'm not sure. I'm uncomfortable with that. I really had to wrestle through that, but I realized that some of that is, you know, like whiteness, perfectionism, shame, you know, like this feeling that I'm always supposed to be producing and working toward justice and that it looks like this versus understanding and being able to uh, appreciate the role of embodiment and rest. And, and just that this idea of flourishing is for everyone. Um, and, and even though we have different roles in that, um, just really like leaning into that and experiencing such tremendous joy. So I love, I just love the way that you said that because it's, it is absolutely as well, like what brings me hope and what gives me hope in this is like every conversation that I have with people um, where we're talking about contending for and fighting for justice and reimagining and recreating a new world and a new way of being um, in co-liberation is just, it's a really powerful and beautiful thing. So I thank you so much for, you know, coming on the podcast and talking to me. I feel like I could go in so many directions with you. So I'm like, okay, behave, focus, be specific, talk about the book, you know, get into abolition a little, but yeah, I really appreciate you coming on and talking to us and telling us about the book. Where can people follow your work, find you, tell us about all of your books that you've written and where we can get them and yeah, anything else? Yeah, uh, the first book I wrote um, is called Fire by Night, Finding God in the Pages of the Old Testament. And that um, came out, I think in 2018, and also with Herald Press. How to Have an Enemy is out on Kindle June 20th and out in hardback, my preferred version of reading <laughs> on, uh, right. on July 20th. Uh, there will also be an audiobook version for those of you who are audio readers. And I'm not quite sure on the date on that, but keep an eye out to Audible. Um, I'm on social media where I try to behave myself, um, but you can... <laughs> by looking up my name and um, yeah and I'm always happy to drop in for a book study or um, conversations with um, uh, churches and reading groups so reach out and I'd love to chat that's awesome thank you so much mm -hmm.